Good morning. This is Hal Hester. And happy Thanksgiving. And this is our podcast. Doesn't that seem weird? Howard Word. I don't know about you, but well, I, I've been like trying to get today. my head around that, that literally Thursday is Thanksgiving. And uh, it just seems like the God most bizarre thing in the Please world to the be message. here already. Uh, you know, this, it seems like football season just started. And now it's like basically over, which might as well be, you know, in my point of view. But anyhow, uh, no, good to see you. I hope that you are doing well. And uh, you are excited about uh, giving thanks. I, I, you know, I was thinking as uh, Bobby was talking about communion and just, you know, uh, how much we do have to give thanks for as we come into this season of reflection. That's what the season's all about, really, isn't it? It's, it's not so much that the holiday itself, but it's that call to reflect on what God is doing in our lives and through us. And so anyhow, I'm excited about Thanksgiving, looking forward to uh, the festivities as well as to uh, the time of just gathering around the table and reflecting. And then next Sunday, we're beginning our Advent series, The Great Christmas Rescue. I'm looking forward to that, sharing that with you. Uh, Always a good time. And of course, baby dedications during uh, the second service. So Uh, Looking forward to that as well. But today, today we are wrapping up our series on Psalm 23. And as I said at the beginning of this series, you know, it's this is one of the most read, most beloved Psalms in the entire Psalter. Week one, we focused in on the whole aspect of the provision of God, of how He meets our needs. Uh, And so, thus, the idea of life without lack, uh, of a sense of confidence that God is with us, and that every good thing that we have in our lives is because of the provision of God. And then last week, we focused in on the protection of God, of how He meets our needs and He walks with us, even through the most difficult moments in our life, hence the the picture there of going through the valley or through the low places of life, even facing uh, the, the shadow of death, that we have confidence in Him and are not afraid, not because that difficulty doesn't come our way, not because death and, and, and hardship do not come our way, but confident that He will go with us and that we will still be in His presence, even if we should uh, graduate, as it were, to the other side. This week, we're wrapping up with a focus on the presence of God, uh, meaning that li- a life without lack is best experienced when we're confident in His nearness to us, and that our lives then flow out of that sense of expectation that God is continually with us, always uh, by our side, and in the midst of all of life's situations. So, with that said, I'd like to ask you to, one last time, stand with me. We're going to read the psalm out loud together off the screen. Of course, I still encourage you to open it up in your, you know, phone, tablet, Bible, whatever you have, uh, you know, as we are studying together. But I'd like to begin this morning, of course, reading together. So on the screen there, and we read these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. You know, one of the things that stands out uh, about this psalm is the use of the personal name of God, the personal address of God, Yahweh, both at the beginning and the end of the psalm. Of course, we were reading from the English Standard Version, which employs the Septuagint way of approaching the name of Yahweh, uh, of just simply the you know, using the word LORD in all caps. If you ever see that in your Bible and you weren't familiar with that, that's why whenever you see LORD all in caps, like, you know, even though they're kind of maybe a little bit lowercase in the O-R-D, it's still a capital letters and all, that's done that way in that kind of typeface simply to indicate that the personal name of God, uh, Yahweh, is uh, there in the text. Part of the reason we do that is simply this. Uh, that in your New Testament, uh, the, is, it is always quoting the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew, and so the term Lord is employed. Uh, the personal name of God, Yahweh, is not used in the New Testament text. Uh, it's always Lord, and so in, in keeping a sense of uniformity, uh, one of the reasons that we do it that way, uh, and even understanding that the early church, the common uh, way uh, the common scriptures, if you will, of the early church was simply then to uh, have the Septuagint. It was the first codex, in other words, book like you and I think of a book uh, that was carried by the early church. So as people then began to be uh, able to uh, acquire copies uh, of the Bible, it would have been most likely that they were that they would have had. Uh, a codex of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, long even before the New Testament letters were written. And then even once the letters were written, understanding that they had not yet been assembled together in a codex. And so the early church the primary Bible of the early church was the Septuagint. And so then in terms of our translators, uh, a lot of uh, times uh, that, that's why they're using that there. It's not a disregard of the name Yahweh. It's simply in trying to keep a sense of uniformity. Uh, although many of our newer translations have now gone back and are beginning to put uh, the, you know, Yahweh into the text, uh, some examples being the Christian Standard Bible, uh, actually when it was published in 2005, it in several instances uh, started translating the word Yahweh, and then when they did a revision in, I believe it was 2015, they went through and did almost every instance, but not all. I don't know why you do several and then not do all, but anyhow, uh, nonetheless, this psalm begins and ends with that kind of personal address. So if we were to read it in the Hebrew, we would read Yahweh is my shepherd. There's this sense of personal connection that David is making, and then he ends it with the idea of dwelling in the house of Yahweh forever. There is an intentional use there of employing God's personal name and not in employing 
any of the other terms that were used for God, Elohim or something like that, uh, there is a, a, a deep sense of personal uh, connection with Yahweh that David is expressing uh, in this psalm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and why that's so in, in, incredibly important to you and I is the sense that oftentimes when people speak of the Old Testament, they speak of God in more aloof kind of terms, and you know, as if that when we get to the New Testament, suddenly God became a Christian and became more available and uh, more understanding and kind. And yet, almost every text where people will talk about the mercy of God, His grace enduring forever, uh, His presence being with us, are either A, a uh, you know, directly a passage from the Old Testament, or B, a New Testament requoting of those Old Testament passages. In fact, I would point out that I don't think that you can think of a single passage in the New Testament that speaks of God's tenderness, His availability, His kindness, His mercy, His everlasting goodness, His grace toward us, that you're not quoting the Old Testament. And so when people tell me that somehow God in the Old Testament was aloof and far off, I, I, one of the things I just want to say is, well, where's your proof? Where's your proof? You see, the God of the Scripture, the God of the Bible is the same God He's always been, uh, and His nature is unchanging. And it's, it's one of the things that you and I take great comfort in, is that God is unchanging. And you might say, well, why is that important to me? Well, it's foundationally important in this. If God is a changing God, if God shifts like the shadows, then can you be certain of the promises He's made to you? What if God can become just a little bit evil? What if God could change His mind about, you know, that whole thing of salvation? Yeah, you know, I know I said that whole thing about Jesus, but gosh, you guys have been really irritating. I've just decided to wipe you out. Right? I mean, and, and if you think about it from a really practical standpoint, like, aren't you now really glad that God is the unchanging God, that His attitude toward us doesn't change, that His word is faithful. And so one of the things that we see when we get into the 23rd Psalm is this expectation of David of an intimacy and a tenderness about God, that Yahweh is the friend of David. And so when we read this Psalm, David, listen, he never doubted the presence of Yahweh, right? So, so from the very beginning, he says, God, he says, Yahweh, you're, you're my shepherd. That's why I don't want. You're my shepherd. That's why I lack for nothing. And then as he closes it out in that sense of confidence, and because of who you are, I will dwell in your house. Not necessarily meaning the temple, but in the sense of belonging. See, you, you are of a household, are you not? I'm of the household of Hester. Uh, all of my life, I have been of the household of Hester. That's the concept that, that, that he's trying to drive home. And he says, and I will be of your household all the days of my life. There is a sense of deep comfort. There is a sense of, of trust. There is an expectation that Yahweh, the personal God of the Hebrew people, would always be there for him. 
now, in contrast, I know, you know that <clears throat> in modern Christianity, there is often a lot of talk about this whole thing. Maybe you've heard the expression, religion o relationship over religion. Have you heard that comment? Uh, oftentimes people will say, you know, uh, that they are confident that Christianity is meant to be a relationship, not a religion. And yet the reality is, is that for most people in terms of their interacting with God, there is not a true sense of confidence in the presence of God or a real personal depth of relationship. Although it is the language of the contemporary church to call God our friend, and we even like, you know, struggle when passages say things about the fear of the Lord, and we like to try to explain that away uh, with all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, double speak and things like that. Uh, you know, the scripture paints out this picture that that fear of God is the beginning of understanding of knowledge in fact the interesting thing there in that use of the word knowledge and understanding is not like head knowledge it's experiential knowledge one begins to experience and know who god is the moment we begin to realize that he is powerful that he is uh you know uh, all present and and ominous in many ways and yet that he is good I liken the illustration, I, I love the illustration, uh, to nuclear power. You know, nuclear power is neither good nor bad. I, I know we could probably debate the whole thing about whether or not you are in, in terms of environmentalism, um, although I'm, I'm kind of in favor of nuclear green kind of thinking that it's probably one of the greenest sources of power we actually have, but I, I won't get into that. I guess I kind of did. Anyhow, um, <laughs> My, my point simply being this is that, you know, when you talk about nuclear power, man, we split an atom and we can power cities, right? We split an atom and we can put ships on the ocean for years at a time with not, at, without having to fuel up. Uh, we split an atom and we can be extremely destructive like in the case of a nuclear bomb, or we can do great things with it in terms of uh, constructive. It's this small thing, and yet it's so powerful, right? And, and, and the same is true with electricity or any number of forces like that that are, have great potential in terms of power. And yet, there's also this great need for you and I to respect that power. Right? I mean, you know, if you grab hold of an electric socket, you will learn respect one way or another, right away. You know, I can remember very clearly one time changing out a fluorescent light bulb back in the day, and one of the little plastic tongs was broken, and I didn't know that, and I stuck the light bulb up like this, and as I turned, my pinky made connection, and my arm, like, you know, started doing this, and I couldn't pull my arm down and I remember like that my you know finally my mom reaching up and shoving me away from the light bulb uh, to disconnect now listen there was no evil intent on the part of the light fixture or the light bulb even though I might have said something evil about both but at the moment my the point is is that it's not it wasn't it wasn't bad it wasn't evil it's very constructive but it really was powerful. It's not something you want to mess with, right? And so 
when we talk about the fear of God, we're talking about that, that God is all-powerful, almighty, and yet there is this need for great respect in His presence that we don't simply take Him lightly, but we enter into His presence with a sense of expectation of His personhood. Well, like I said, very few of us come into this idea when we Although we might speak about God as our friend and talk about relationship rather than religion, most of us tend to interact with God in a less personal way, and, and oftentimes we tend to approach Him in very mechanistic type of ways, whether it's maybe even going to church on a Sunday morning, sometimes just simply in the hopes of, of appeasing our deity, right, instead of be spending time with him uh, or maybe we're looking for an experience to happen to us we go to church on a sunday morning and uh, maybe you've even said it and i don't mean this in any kind of negative or condemning way but oftentimes we'll speak of church in the terms of what we're going to get out of it the experience we're going to have whether or not it will make us feel better whether you know we say well it sets the tone for the whole week and and, and it should, right, if we're actually coming into the presence of God. And yet there's sometimes we just kind of treat it in a very mechanistic way, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Are, we, we have this tendency to kind of treat God as a thing and the, and the experience of God as a thing rather than this abiding sense of relationship, of doing life with God, not just using Him. The tenderness of a life without lack, as we pick up there in verse 5, he uses some language that's somewhat foreign to you and I. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, okay, I, I just got to say this really quickly, you know, um, I know that I, some of you are like really big into essential oils and everything, and, and so, you know, maybe you're already thinking, well, I, if you just, you know, actually would use them, you would be better off. Okay, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Uh, you know, it, uh, instead, it's just this kind of bizarre phrase to you and I uh, of using oil to rub over oneself as, you know, a way of refreshing. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm cooking, you know, uh, and I get oil on my hands, you know, uh, maybe from putting something in the oil, or maybe I've rubbed it into a batter of some kind or whatever, I, I immediately like do this, right? I'm like going over and I'm using my elbow to turn on the water, and I grab the Dawn dish soap because it will get the oil off, right? I mean, I, I don't want to leave it on my skin. There's very few times... Uh, that uh, maybe if I'm cooking outside and I don't have any other options that I choose to rub it in, you know, uh, after I have gotten myself uh, oily, you know. Uh, it's just not something I think of as being refreshing. But yet, in the ancient Near East, olive oil, especially olive oil mixed with a variety of spices, is used to make perfumes and ointments not only for the treatment of ailments like we do with essential oils, but as a sign of hospitality to offer an aromatic oil to my guest simply because they lived in such an 
arid climate. And so the thought was that it was use it to refresh and restore the skin. Now, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, so I can tell you all about arid climate. When it's 15% humidity outside and people are still going, it just kind of feels sticky today. And I actually was thinking as I moved to Florida, because I had lived in Florida for a while uh, as a young adult uh, when I was running from Jesus and discovered that he even like went to Tampa. And, um, uh, I, and, I, I, and, so, and I, so I ran all the way back to you know, Texas and, and he still followed me. And anyhow, that's a long story. But my point simply being this is that when we were moving here, I was like thinking to myself, I don't know if I can like handle this, right? Can I live, we've been here 11 years now, can I live in the humidity? Because I'm used to that really dry, dry climate. But, you know, living in that really dry, dry climate, we were constantly, like when I got out of the shower in the morning, one, like it didn't take much to dry off because it like it just evaporated off of your body. And, um, but then we would take and put lotion on because your skin would start cracking. You, you felt it in your hair and everything. Uh, you, you felt it, you know, uh, all around you. There's this sense of dryness. And so living in an arid climate, uh, one of the things that was common in the ancient Near East uh, was simply to take that oil and to mix it with a variety of, uh, of spices so that it, it smelled good and it was used to refresh the person as they came into your home. Here's the other part, you know, that's like less attractive, but, but it, was, it served a, a very attractive point. It was, it was also used to cover up body odor, right? Because if you've ever lived in an arid climate, what, one of the things you may have discovered is that you perspire really badly, but then it dries into your clothing and it gets crispy. And remember thinking back in the ancient Near East that they intentionally wore long flowing clothing to catch the air to blow through. So when the clothing got wet from perspiration and the air blew through, it was kind of like built-in air conditioning. That sounds good, but I want you to think for just a moment how that might smell at the dinner table, especially when you're reclining. And you see, you, now you know why they washed each other's feet and why they gave them oil to rub on themselves just so they might smell more pleasant at the dinner table. Hello? So lots of word pictures there that you will not forget. Anyhow, so it was still common in Jesus' day. Think about when Jesus chided Simon the Pharisee when Simon invited him to his house and the woman comes in and she anoints his feet with oil and she's crying tears over his feet and, and Simon is looking and he's casting judgment and Jesus says to him, you know, listen, you did not offer me, you did not wash my feet and yet she's not stopped. You did not anoint me with oil. You did not offer these things to me and she has not, you know, she has uh, poured all of this out on me. There's this picture that was still common all throughout the ancient Near East that uh, I would say probably, you know, to, today uh, that these kind of things are, are, are not done in the same way. But David is picturing Yahweh as one who refreshes him so much so that he feels blessed just to be in the presence of God.
I want you to think about that for a moment. What, is it, what does it mean for you to be in the presence of God? Could be on Sunday morning, but what about just even in the quiet place of your heart, of where you spend time with the Lord in the morning? You know, this past uh, Friday, just a couple of days ago, uh, as our life group was gathered, uh, one of the things that uh, John Hill was saying is, he said, you know, I, I just can't start the day out without spending at least just a couple of hours in the presence of God. It's, it's what gives me a sense of center and direction and purpose for the rest of the day. That sense that God being with us have you ever been in the presence of greatness? You know, over the years, <clears throat> I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of really uh, famous people, if you will. In my teen years, uh, I, I did a lot of managing of bands, and so I met a lot of famous rock stars. It was very exciting. A few times disappointing but for the most part quite exciting through the years i've actually met a number of world leaders i've met almost every author i've ever wanted to meet met other people in positions of power people of great means I attended a private school in midland texas in the oil, during the oil boom years of the 80s and so i got to meet some people that uh, were very interesting and very powerful and who continue to be very influential in the world. I doubt they remember me, but I remember meeting them. Anytime you're in the presence of really powerful or influential people, there's always this question about whether or not you will, you know, uh, whether that experience is going to be a good experience or it's going to be disappointing. The disappointing ones, obviously the ones that are very self-absorbed or don't, you know, or, or mistreat people, uh, who uh, act, treat people lightly or something like that. But I have to say that overall, my experience uh, over the years of meeting people like that has been pretty positive overall. Most of those persons enjoyed the interaction because they're just people like you and me. They learned from the encounter. They engaged and asked questions. But can I tell you that the people, the ones that made the greatest impact on me over all the years, one person I can think of in particular that what made that meeting them so particularly interesting and left an indelible mark on my life was the ones who took as much interest in me as I took in them. There was something about that I felt in the presence of greatness not because they were so great but because they made me feel great. Do you know what I'm saying? I knew I mattered. I knew I mattered before that moment, but there was something about that encounter with them that made me feel a greater sense of that I mattered in life, in the world. In those moments, I've got to be honest, were few and far between. 
when David is describing God, he's describing God in those kinds of terms. I know this might be like hard to get our heads around, but if we're talking on the scale of the most significant beings in the whole universe, I would think creator of all things ought to be like really high on the list, right? I mean, <laughs> and yet, oftentimes, like we, when it comes to approaching the presence of God, we, we do it in a very uh, light way or we're simply just hoping that we have some kind of musical encounter on a Sunday morning or something like that. And yet, here's the expectation of David is that God's presence that God desires to be with him, that God wants David in his presence. David wants to be in the presence of God. There's this sense of reciprocity that is occurring, that there's this expectation of, of encountering the living God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, being dear to his heart, and David being near and dear to the heart of God. Oftentimes we quote you know, John 3.16 in a very evangelistic way, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But have you ever thought of it in terms of who we're talking about? That the God of the universe so loved the world, not just the church, not just those who are good, not just those who follow his ways, but that God, the creator of all things, the, the maker of the cosmos, that in the midst of his thoughts about the world said, I so love the world that I would give them my one and only unique son. David describes God in those kinds of terms. That God's presence is like the anointing of his head with oil. That God's presence fills me like a cup full to overflowing. There's this, this sense of encounter with the living God, the creator of the universe. Like I said earlier, it's it's popular in the modern church to speak of Christianity in terms of relationship over religion, and yet, in reality, few are those who actually live in a place of a sense of overflow, of expectation that God is so deeply present, so continually interested that I could be in constant communion with Him, that I could know His presence hour by hour, Instead, most of the time, our, our activities are captured, our minds, our hearts are captured by all the goings-on about us. I, I've said this several times to you, but it's one of the lingering experiences of the last couple of years for me where I have literally used my smartphone to make myself a little bit more aware of the presence of God. And so each hour, it's just simply that reminder to encounter God, to stop what I'm doing. And so when that phone goes off, 
whether I'm with a, a hundred people or I'm sitting by myself, that pops up on the screen and it's just that simple reminder like to engage God. It's not because I have to now enter into some long prayer or something like that, but then to just simply turn my heart's attention, my mind's attention to the simple fact that God is near me, is present to me in that hour and that I'm present to Him, that I can dwell with Him, that I can know what David spoke of, that sense of that from morning to night, from my rising to the setting of the sun, from the moment I sit up to the moment I lie down, and even should I awake in the watches of the night, that I could have this sense of the presence of God with me. And the more I find myself engaging in those, that little simple exercise, that more that sense of that my life really does function out of a place without lack, so that when the rug is being pulled out from under me, whether that is relationally or if it's financially or even uh, in times of difficulty or hardship or someone pressing against me in a way that is negative, that I can find myself like going to that place. Oh God, I know that you will not abandon me. Oh God, I, I know that you have this situation in hand and I don't understand how it's unfolding, and it may not unfold in a way that I'm going to like, but I, I really do believe that you are with me in this moment. I really do believe you have this situation underhand, even the ones that are uncomfortable, even the ones that are confrontational, even the ones that are downright ugly, that I have this sense that you are with me, that you've heard the words that were spoken, seen the activities all under the sun, but you have not abandoned me. A life without lack, I never lack His presence. The Apostle Paul spoke of the idea as well when he talked about uh, unceasing prayer, even as David was suggesting here, an unending communion with the presence of God as it overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Do you hear that certainty? Surely. Not hopefully. Surely. I, 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 I don't mean surely as in if surely we're here, you know, we would have had one more. Um, I mean surely in the sense of uh, that deep sense of abiding confidence. Surely the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life. See, we're not talking about the musings of a privileged old king. It's one of his earliest psalms. We're talking about the words of a young warrior fresh from battle. These are the words of a man who's been through real hell in his life and yet is confident in the goodness and mercy of God. Think for just a moment in some of the examples. In 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, when David was told that his child who he had conceived with Bathsheba, was going to die. He fell on his face and he wept and fasted for days. When we get to chapter 12, he hears that the child has died. Nobody wants to tell him, right? I mean, they're like watching what's happening and how he's weeping and, and how he's carrying on and they're going, man, nobody wants to. They're, so they're whispering in the hallway, did you know, did you know that the child has died? What should we do? How are we going to tell him? And David overhears the conversation 
and begins to inquire what has happened. Well, no one's going to lie to the king. So finally they tell him. And when he'd heard that the child had died, it says he got up and he refreshed himself and he ate and he took amusement. Those who watched it were just absolutely baffled. And then it speaks of how he cared for his wife who was suffering this loss and how he comforted her. When he was questioned over his ability to recover so quickly, here's how he explained himself. In the terms of the goodness and the mercy of God, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. See, David was saying, listen, as long as the child lived, I pleaded my case before the Lord because I know of the goodness and the mercy of God. I thought, who knows, but that God might have mercy on me. Then he said, but once the child had passed, I knew that God had decided and that the child would not return to me, but I would go to him. I would go into the presence of God. Do you hear that? This is the David who has committed adultery. This is the David who has had a man murdered. And yet, here's what he's saying. He says, in the midst of all that, I know still about the goodness and the mercy of God. I know that this is the God who forgives. I know that this is the God who establishes us. I know this is the God who has never left me, never forsaken me, never taken his presence away from me. And so in the conclusion of even in the midst of probably his greatest moral failure of all time, he still had this confidence. Here's the thing he knew. It wasn't that God was punishing him. It was the consequences of his behavior and things working out in the world. And yet here's what he said. God is so good and merciful that I threw myself down at his feet and I worshiped him and I called upon him. And when he decided that, that was not the thing that... To, should take place. That's not the way it should happen. I still knew that he was the merciful. I still knew that he was the good God. I still knew that I would be in his presence. I never questioned my circumstances as the evidence as to whether or not good was kind or merciful or good. But instead, in the midst of those things, I knew that he was with me and that I will go into his presence and I will see that child again. See, when everybody was startled at how well he took the news and how quickly he seemed to recover, they really missed the point. The point wasn't that David had a quick recovery. The point wasn't that David was so strong. The point was that he knew who God was. The point was that he had an intimate relationship with God that was never separated by his wickedness any more than it was created by his goodness. For God so loves the world that he sent his son. Not because he was irritated, not because he was disappointed, not because he wished they would get there together.
Because he loves them. Because he loves you and me. See, it's not how well he took the news. It's not his sense of, of strength or, or David's prowess or anything else. It was this expectation that God, who is both merciful and good, will continue to be merciful and good. It's not that he went from feeling awful to feeling better about his situation. It's not that he didn't suffer a terrible loss and then suddenly felt better. What David was conveying both in the psalm and in that event was that God was not unkind, nor was God to blame for the situation. It wasn't that God was unjust. It's that David had behaved badly and there were consequences. But David believed that regardless of the circumstances, he would see his child again. He would spend eternity both with God and that child. And what happened as a result of David's sin would not change the nature of who God was. See, the nature of God is goodness and mercy. That's why David knew he would see his son again. The nature of God was goodness and mercy. That's why he knew he would dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. The nature of God was goodness and mercy. That's why God would not forsake sinful David. The nature of God is goodness and mercy, grace and mercy, so that he feared nothing. <clears throat> not even evil. The nature of God was grace and mercy. That's why David was confident of God's provision. Line by line, six verses, all predicated on one thing, who God is. See, that's really the strength, that's really the meat of the psalm. Whether you and I are talking about His presence, His provision, or His protection, what we're really saying is simply this. We're agreeing with David that the nature of God is goodness and mercy. And that's what prevails. That's what prevails against my circumstances. That's what prevails against hardship and difficulty and, 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 and circumstances that are beyond my control. It's the thing that prevails whenever I have no other place to go. It's the thing that prevails when I do. It's the peace that I have. It's the hope that I have. Line by line, all predicated on the very nature of God. Not just any God, but Yahweh. I am that, he am that I am is the God who provides, protects, and whose presence does not withdraw from us, even in our foolishness, even in our sinfulness. You may withdraw from Him, but He does not withdraw from you. You know, last week we expressed a great deal of confidence in God to protect us. I, I, you know, brought up this whole idea of having confidence in the God who protects us, who's with us, even in the midst of difficulty and circumstance, and invited people to stand uh, with a sense of confidence that God would be with us, that He would protect us and provide for us. And it was very encouraging as people like took that stand, you know, together, and, and we just prayed for God's blessing over that sense of confidence. And then we opened up the altar for those who did not feel that sense of confidence, right? To, to come and to seek the Lord in those things, uh, uh, to, to, 
to pursue that sense of God's presence, or, or, or that, that sense of God's protection and provision. This week, as you and I wrap up this series and we consider His presence, like one of the things I wonder about is, do we have that same confidence in His presence? That God does not leave us, that He does not stop loving us, and with that, that he doesn't stop correcting us. See, he, he doesn't leave us. And so that means sometimes that he's very much engaged in redirecting and purposely ordering our steps in a way that is in step with who he is. But that he doesn't abandon us. And so I want to say today, if you're, if you're just feeling abandoned, you know, or if you're in need of assurance that, uh, you know, that you would have the freedom with which to ask God to be there for you. So I just want to invite you today, if that's where you're at, if you're saying, like, God, I need more of, I want more of your presence. I want more of you. And, and uh, you know, uh, regardless of uh, the amount of presence I have now, could I... Could, I, could there be within me that, that desire to know you more, to know you more deeply? And so if that's you this morning, can I just invite you, would you stand today? Just want more of your presence, Lord. So God, we come before you today <clears throat> and as we've looked into your word, we've been told that you are the God who does not forsake. <clears throat> and yet we recognize within ourselves the lie that the enemy has told us that there are times when you give up. There are times when you don't endure with us any longer. And yet the long history of Israel tells us another story. That from the very beginning, before one sin was committed, that you purposed us in Christ Jesus. That from the very beginning, that you had made a way, that you wanted that relationship with us, you knew our our weaknesses, you knew our failings, you knew that what we would wrestle with and being created in your image of, of the, the wrestling between what is good and right and what is unjust and unkind with the, with the realities of power, with the realities of our ability to solve mysteries in the universe. You saw through the hallways of time even the moment that we find ourselves in right now and in your goodness and in your mercy, you irrevocably settled on the plan of Jesus to make a way for us to become more like you, to be empowered by your Spirit and, and that we might uh, live a life that brings glory and honor to you And yet also, 
that we would have a promise that you would not abandon us. In this hour where we find ourselves assaulted by the, 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 the lies of the enemy, sometimes through popular media, sometimes through the church, sometimes through the people in our lives who withdraw from us, the message is that you do give up. The message, oftentimes, in life and in the world around us, is that we will be forsaken. And in these moments, when we find ourselves doubting your presence, when we find ourselves no longer confident of who you are or what you want to do in us, it's in moments like these where we cry out, More, Lord, we need you. We need your strength. We need your hope. We need you to redirect. We need you to fill us again with a sense of expectation. And so we're asking today, Lord, by the power of your presence, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you touch the hearts and lives of everyone in this room that finds themselves standing before you, uh, calling out, longing for more of you. Lord, would you begin, would you stir up a passion within us of expectation and, uh, and encountering you. Would you draw us deeper into your presence with every tick of the clock, with every moment, with every breath that we draw? Would you draw us deeper into your presence, deeper into a sense of expectation? And Lord, when the enemy lies to us, whether through person or event or past experience, when the enemy lies to us and tells us that you give up, when the enemy lies to us and tells us that you will not be there for us, would you show us your face? Would you touch our spirit? Would you strengthen us and fill us with your presence so that we would be a people who live and a sense of expectation, not in defeat. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.